Hello and welcome to the People Powered Green Left Podcast, where we give a voice to the 99% and not the big corporations. If you think this project is important, please consider becoming a supporter today. Now, on to our latest episode. You are listening to Green Left. This is the second part of our episode, COVID-19 and the Global South, which features a recording of an online forum held by Socialist Alliance and Green Left on April 11th. Um, which featured various um, speak activists um, and socialists from um, global South countries. The second part includes a recording of speeches by Kavita Krishna and Dr. Haujin Aziz. Kavita Krishna is part of the Communist Party of India Marxist-Leninist Liberation, CPIML, and the All India Progressive Women's Association. And she is speaking about the unfolding situation of COVID-19 and how it's impacting on politics in India. Dr. Hojin Aziz is a Kurdish academic and feminist who specialises in gender and Middle Eastern studies and is currently teaching in the American University in Iraq. I hope we hope you enjoy the program. Um, you know, listening to the reports uh, from the Philippines and Malaysia, I'm struck by the similarities in the response of um, uh, governments on the global south, especially the Philippines. And uh, very many of the, um, the, mo- the entire mode of response, which is draconian rather than democratic, and uh, which has signally failed to contain uh, the COVID-19 pandemic and has instead unleashed a whole lot of uh, other distress in the name of a response. That's that's really something that India has in common, especially with the Philippines. Um, so I'll just sort of try and outline quickly what's been going on here. See, the Indian government had at least a first uh, case of COVID-19 on January 30th. So they knew that was happening. But the government of India deliberately suppressed the information, didn't warn anybody, made no preparations that we know of, And instead, they spent the whole of February hosting Trump, uh, hosting large rallies for Trump, gatherings for Trump, and even backing political violence, um, Islamophobic violence against the minority Muslim community in Delhi. Um, Come March, also, the government did not react. The central government did not react till 22nd of March when they announced a one-day lockdown and then suddenly a day later announced a 21-day lockdown with no warning at all. Some of the state governments had already begun to announce lockdowns somewhere uh, beginning around mid-March, but these were poorly understood, poorly communicated, People didn't really know uh, what exactly was going on. And the result of all this has been uh, pretty predictable, which is that you have um, this unplanned lockdown that has left millions of migrant workers completely, um, completely taken unawares, completely taken by surprise. And so they are stuck in uh, cities and towns all over the country without jobs, without any way of earning and without any means of getting back home. So you have, uh, you know, so essentially the unplanned nature of the dramatic uh, draconian nature of the lockdown has in fact resulted in situations where 
the very purpose of the lockdown has been undercut. So you have had huge crowds of migrant workers trying to walk home, um, you know, hundreds of kilometers home uh, in order to try and make it back to their villages. And uh, you have situations where um, there are hungry communities all over the country, desperate hunger, desperate, uh, uh, really a desperate situation. Uh, and a, just as uh, Rihanna described in the Philippines, I mean, you have street talkers and so on. They have no means to survive. Um, India's the majority of workers in India are in the informal sector and they have been left completely, um, you know, uh, left in the lurch by this unplanned lockdown. The other thing is that the lockdown period ought to be used, you know, in other countries where it has actually it is actually being used to, you know, the, you're flattening the curve so that you use that time that you're buying in order to shore up your medical system, in order to do widespread testing and tracing and treating of the COVID-19 cases so that you're able to contain and isolate that. That is not happening in India. India has some of the lowest testing in the world. And um, it's unclear why the government of India uh, was uh, caught in a corruption scandal, um, you know, try in, in the manufacture of testing kits. And... Uh, now also it is unclear why testing kits are so expensive, 4,500 rupees or so. And so uh, it's essentially out of reach for most people. And it is, it, there's no transparency on who is being tested and why. And there never was. Um, and India had very poor screening, very poor testing and continues to do that, uh, continues to have that. Um, the other thing is that the medical system is completely, India's medical system was already highly privatized. The public health infrastructure was always under pressure. And now, you know, in the words of um, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez of the U.S., um, you know, it, this pandemic has poured gasoline on the existing problems. So you have a situation where the health infrastructure is under enormous stress, where uh, doctors and nurses and sanitation workers and so, so on are desperately saying uh, that we don't have masks, we don't have PPE kits, we don't have basic protections. And so you have entire hos hospitals having to shut down because the doctors and the medical staff have been affected by the by the pandemic. And um, not to mention, uh, you know, the risks to which you're putting uh, sanitation workers, health workers. Uh, India has a huge uh, battalion of um, health workers who are women, ASHA workers, they are called, who are in rural India who are the frontline fighters in this fight, and yet they don't even get a basic salary, let alone any kind of pandemic pay or any kind of protection or even transport, safe transport. So there's all of this. The other thing that is happening is that the government's response, the central government's response has been to shore up its authoritarian uh, authoritarianism, which it already had, to shore up its Islamophobia, and uh, to shore up its um, its its endorsement of inequality and its propagation of inequality and utter cruelty. So what you're having is this is a government which is an extremely sort of, um, uh, you know, it, it is a cult. There's a cult figure of Modi at the center. So Modi is washing his hands of all responsibility for uh, actually containing the pandemic. And his uh, belated responses have been limited to asking people to, uh, you know, he borrows all these uh, strategies 
which people have adopted in various parts of the world, like Italy and Brazil and so on, which are either protest tactics or they are, you know, uh, displays of public support for health staff and so on. And he has sort of borrowed them and they, he's made them into these fascist spectacles here. So he's asked people to stand on their balconies and clap or bang plates or light, um, light, light um, candles and so on and so forth. And uh, essentially, that is it. He, he, his, the relief package the central government has announced belatedly is absolutely a joke. It's a farce completely. And uh, the relief work has largely been left to people. So it's trade unions like ours and uh, any number of social and even religious organizations that have stepped up to the plate that are desperately trying to provide relief and provide help to stranded migrant workers, to hungry communities and so on. The, uh, the central government has completely just looked the other way, hasn't even bothered to mention this. Some state governments have, uh, you know, shown, have really shown a better response. And, but they are also drowning in uh, struggle because they were also taken by surprise. They had no time to plan. And all these governments, by the way, are opposition ruled governments. The uh, governments ruled by the BJP, the ruling party, have, um, you know, shown some of the worst responses possible to the pandemic. Now, um, you have a situation right now in India where the number of COVID-19 deaths has crossed 200. Uh, you, you know, the number of confirmed cases is, I think, around 6,000 plus. But the point is that because your testing is so low, you don't really know the scale and size of all this at all because the testing is absolutely low. But on the other hand, the lockdown related deaths are also very high in number difficult to calculate, but I just want to quickly read through the various um, heads under which you could classify these deaths. So deaths due to interstate travel, so migrant workers traveling on foot and dying in uh, road accidents and so on. Uh, Alcoholism-related deaths, suicides due to alcoholism, suicide, uh, you know, alcohol withdrawal, uh, suicides due to uh, COVID-19 panic, Lockdown lynchings, so lynch, lynch mobs attacking Muslims. I'll talk about that a little bit more a little later. Lockdown-related hunger deaths, uh, suicides due to livelihood issues, police brutality deaths, suicides due to police brutalities, uh, domestic violence resulting in deaths, and deaths due to the denial and lack of access to regular medical care, including uh, even care for cancer or care for other chronic um, and very serious illnesses all of which has completely shut down. Everything has been diverted only through, towards COVID-19, and even that is uh, really in bad shape. So with all this, the, the other thing I want to quickly mention when I have the time, I think I have a few minutes left. Uh, um, the, the, the other thing I want to quickly flag here is that the central government, right from the top, has been suppressing information, denying any kind of transparency, and instead of acknowledging any responsibility itself, has tried to communalize which means to give an Islamophobic spin to the pandemic. So they have tried to claim that it is a Muslim gathering in Delhi that is responsible for India's pandemic problem. And so, uh, you know, helped by uh, corporate media that is largely in the central governments and Narendra Modi's pockets, uh, they have managed to establish this narrative, toxic narrative, which is resulting in social boycotts of Muslim street vendors, Muslim-owned shops, and uh, even lynch mob violence, which was happening even earlier on other pretexts. Now, this is a fresh pretext for violence against Muslims. Uh, there's also, India has always had an untouchability problem, big time, so caste-based untouchability. Now, that has ex expanded 
So uh, essentially poor people, uh, people who are suspected, there's enormous stigma associated with COVID-19, partly because of this uh, high-pitched Islamophobic campaign and criminalizing of COVID-19 by the state. So the point is that if you know, people are trying to suppress information because if they feel that that will result, they're looking at quarantine as an arrest and um, you know, the quarantine as a detention camp, that kind of thing. And the, 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 the quarantine conditions are also terrible for most of the people, for most of the poor people. So they uh, try to avoid that. And as a result, you're having, uh, you know, because of the criminalization and the stigma associated with this and the sheer untouchability that uh, not only COVID-19 patients or those in quarantine or those suspected of having uh, been exposed to the virus, but even healthcare workers, sanitation workers, doctors, nurses, you name it. All of them are experiencing stigma. They're being uh, denied, you know, thrown out by landlords. Uh, they are being denied basic services and so on. So uh, essentially, untouchability in India has got a fresh lease of life in all this. So uh, with the little time that I have left, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm hoping that, okay, um, okay, 10 minutes are up, so I have five minutes left. Uh, uh, let me take the rest of the time to quickly flag some other stuff here. So the ILO and the United Nations have warned that um, as a result of India's uh, pandemic-related lockdown, around uh, 40 crore, that is 400 million Indians, are likely to descend into poverty, which means that apart from those who are already in poverty, you're going to have this enormous uh, you know, push into poverty. They're going to be shoved into poverty overnight, virtually. Um, the staying power of India's poor, because most of them are daily wagers with no income, no other income, no savings, uh, the staying power is extremely poor. And so you have this enormous uh, crisis of food, rations, you name it. Even giving rations is not enough, as we have found, uh, because uh, even if you give rations, people have run out of fuel, so they're unable to cook the food. I want to quickly flag here the fact that the remarkable role that various activists have been playing. And I want to talk briefly about the role that uh, CPIML and AICCTU comrades have been, our trade union comrades have been playing. So, uh, for instance, our CPIML MLA uh, from Jharkhand, he's the member of the Le Legislative Assembly, Vinod Singh. He has single-handedly responded to tens of thousands of phone calls from migrant workers and from distressed people. Similarly, our Le Legislative Assembly members, three of them in Bihar, have also been, um, you know, facing the responding directly to distress calls from distressed communities, hungry communities and migrant workers. And then we, uh, you know, from day one, we, we, we had to scramble to respond to the sudden announcement of a lockdown. But we did manage to establish a network and a team uh, all over the country um, responding to responding to the um, lockdown and providing relief, which the state was had signally failed to provide. So the real issue right now is that we are demanding that because it looks like the lockdown is going to be extended, we are putting out a charter tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow, I want to end by saying that tomorrow, you know, uh, Modi had asked people to ban plates and so on. Now, banning plates is a form of protest which uh, the left movement and people's movements in India have used for a long time to signal hunger and price rise and so on. So tomorrow, in fact, April 12th, all over the country, poor communities are going to respond by um, banging plates and telling Modi, all right, you asked us to do it. We did it then, but uh, as an act of solidarity for doctors. But now we are doing it because those plates we banged are completely empty now. So you have to do home delivery of rations. 
you have to uh, ensure that people get wages, that people's rents are waived um, during this crisis. Uh, you have to ensure that uh, we get the medical care that we need, quite apart from COVID-19, as well as pre-COVID-19 testing and COVID-19 treatment. But also other kinds of treatment can't be suspended during this time. Um, and, uh, and we also want to stop to the draconian police-driven response. And we want a consultative approach this time in which uh, people who are actually working in the front lines of delivering rations and help are helped, not hindered, are involved and not hindered in their work. Uh, thank you. I'll, I'll sign off here. Um, thank you to the previous speakers. Um, it has been very, very enlightening to hear them speak. And like Dr. Kavita mentioned uh, in her presentation, uh, what the previous speakers have said in relation to their respective countries is eerily similar to what is happening here in Iraq at the moment. Uh, I'm going to be, I'm going to attempt to try to break down my presentation into two parts. I'm going to try to focus on both Iraq and Iran. Um, initially, I wanted to spend equal amounts of time focusing on both countries, but having heard what some of the speakers have said, uh, then we're going to try to focus more on Iran because I think the anomaly situation in Iran uh, is something that we haven't seen so far and it really needs to be discussed, whereas Iraq has followed a very similar trajectory to India, to Malaysia, to Philippines in relation to uh, its response to COVID. Just before I, I, I commence into my presentation, I just want to highlight a number of things. Um, as of last night, there was um, a bit of a trigger warning as well. Uh, a gang rape of a Kurdish woman uh, in detention by uh, Iraqi special forces and police forces. Uh, this particular rape was uh, recorded and released via social media. Um, exasperating existing ethno-religious issues and conflicts. And the last day or so, we've also had a 15-year-old Yazidi boy who was killed uh, in Germany. He was a survivor of the ISIS attacks and the uh, ISIS uh, genocide of the Yazidi people. This links back to another massacre that occurred uh, less than a month ago in Germany towards a number of Kurdish uh, refugees uh, from the Kurdish parts of Turkey who had been killed as a result of fascist uh, attacks towards them. Uh, at the same time, in the last few days, we've seen a number of ISIS attacks, terrorist organizations who are actually reviving uh, and trying to use the period of um, quarantine to attempt to implement their own particular objectives. So my point in highlighting these number of cases is that you know, a lot of minority communities, a lot of indigenous communities, uh, ethnic and religious minorities are attempting to, to survive the period of quarantine, survive this global pandemic in light of a background of extreme oppression, violence, uh, attempting to survive genocide uh, and attempting to, to uh, live in an environment that consistently uh, and systematically erases them, silences them, uh, kills them, uh, and basically attempts to engage in a number of intersecting layers of oppression and violences. Uh, this is also important to highlight because I think we need to touch on the fact that the global pandemic has had a gendered impact and we should probably attempt to focus on how the pandemic has had uh, an impact in relation to women and how women have been influenced by this, uh, by this global uh, pandemic. But let me just briefly go into some details and figures in relation to Iraq. I'll start off with Iraq and then I'll, I'll go into Iran. Iraq has had a very, very similar response to uh, to the global crisis. It has been uh, marred by a period of anti-government uh, 
protest, anti-colonial protest against Iranian influences as well as British and American influences in late 2019. So we've had a period where we've actually not had any form of government, centralized government whatsoever as a result of the Tahrir Square protest, uh, pro-democracy protest. The government had resigned uh, and we were in a stage of attempting to try to find uh, an alternative cabinet. So <laughs> there are multiple layers of confusion, there are multiple layers of inconsistencies and problems, political and social problems made much, much worse by lack of uh, having a centralized government. At the same time, here in the northern part, we have the Kurdistan regional government, which is almost a shadow state in comparison to the rest of Iraq. So we've had two varying types of responses in Iraq um, in relation to the pandemic. Um, very, very similar to what is happening in the rest of, of, of the other three countries. Uh, the Iraqi government and the Kurdistan regional government were completely unprepared uh, and implemented quarantine measures very, very, very late. One of the major problems that caused a huge spike in increases in the number of people who were infected were uh, the fact that the borders between Iran and Iraq were not closed. Now, the reason why I also wanted to talk about Iran is that uh, the Iran and Iraq regimes and states are extremely intertwined politically, socially, economically, uh, ethnic and religious wise. So it's almost impossible to discuss Iraq without also discussing Iran. And so as a result of this connection, there were a large number of people who were flying between Iran and Iraq uh, and the Shiite religious sites. Uh, and so the very first case that was um, uh, infected here in Iraq was somebody who had returned from the religious site of Qum, where a number of uh, Shiite shrines are uh, are, are placed uh, in, the, in the city. And so... The lack of uh, preparation has caused a number of issues within society. And like some of the other countries, Iraq has not suggest made any suggestions in relation to providing any sort of a financial support to those who are impacted. Um, at the same time, we have a large, of almost 1.5 million plus number of ref refugees and internally displaced people who are almost uh, in a state of double lockdown, uh, prevented from even leaving their tents and attempting to survive a very, very tense um, and uncertain period of time uh, in even more debilitating and difficult situations. At the moment uh, in Iraq, uh, we have about, actually uh, last night when I was preparing the figures, uh, we had 1,232 people who were infected. As of this morning, we have 1,279 people. That's a spike of 47 people overnight. The number of deaths across Iraq was 69 last night. This morning, it reached 70. So the numbers are increasing, although relative to the number of other countries, it's actually quite low. Um, and uh, people, at least in the northern parts, in the Kurdistan regional government, have been praising the government in relation to its effective measures in implementing quarantine, in uh, threatening to basically arrest anyone uh, that would break curfew. Uh, and this is in light of a situation where the, the governments in the region have been extremely ineffective, have been... Um, almost debilitated with uh, intense amounts of corruption and nepotism. So this is one measure that is considered by the majority of people here to be actually effective. Uh, and so there's a high level of support, to some degree high level of support for the quarantine measures that are being placed. Um, We've had no testing kits, aside from the fact that uh, China in late February and early March uh, sent a number of uh, shipments 
uh, of testing kits. We have at the moment in the Kurdistan regional government about 1,000 testing kits, which is extremely, extremely low for a population of about you know, six to seven million people in the north. It's, it's horrendously low. Uh, at the same time, though, testings are for free, whereas in comparison in Iran, testing costs uh, the average person about 600 thousand Iranian lira, which is about $142.50. Huge, huge amounts uh, for the average person person to be able to pay. Uh, and most people will not be able to pay, especially in light of the fact that there have been sanctions in, in place in Iran, uh, huge amounts of economic decline. We've seen huge numbers of protests across Iran uh, in late uh, uh, to. 2019 in relation to uh, the lack of support and development in relation to economic uh, situation of Iran. Now, uh, we've had similar uh, processes in place. We've had quarantine. We've had uh, the quarantine placed in, in place in Iraq uh, in late February, about 20, 24th of February, after the first person was diagnosed, having returned from Iran on the 22nd of February. However, uh, quarantine was not actually put into place until here in the northern parts until the 13th of March. Uh, we had a 48-hour notice, uh, you know, uh, quarantine play, put into place, then it was extended by another 48 hours, and then eventually it was extended to, to longer periods of time. And now we are assuming that we're going to be in quarantine until April, at the end of April. Um, there have been roadblocks put into place. There have been uh, issues in relation to the two Kurdish political parties in the north here, uh, where the zones that they control are, um, you know, there's, there's actually borders put into place. Uh, trenches dug to prevent people from trying to attempting to travel. There have been issues where one of the cities, Duhok city here, uh, was about to declare that its city was uh, free of quarantine, but then as a result of nepotism and corruption, a family who had returned from uh, UK was snuck into the city uh, and it turned out that all members of the family were infected with COVID and that resulted in a continuation of the lockdown. So the situation has been exacerbated by by a lack of consistency, by lack of information. The Kurdistan regional government has attempted to try to implement as much information across social media. Uh, there's been a lot of protest, both across Iraq and here in, uh, in the Kurdistan regional government because of lack of trust towards the government. Some people have claimed that this is a hoax. Some claim have, have claimed that this is just uh, a Western imperial threat or uh, something that the government is trying to use in order to silence protesters, particularly in relation to the Tahrir Square protesters, which the COVID has had a catastrophic um, impact on and has, has basically completely shut down that process, uh, which was in the process of actually gaining momentum and gaining a lot of influence in relation to changing the corrupt government and bringing about systematic and institutionalized change. Iran, on the other hand, has responded completely differently. It has not implemented any form of quarantine measures. It has not implemented social distancing. It has not implemented any form of lockdown. And communities and people are continuing to go about their lives as a result of this situation. Uh, there have been a worrying number of responses. There has been, in the last week or so, uh, thousands of detainees, prisoners, who have been protesting against the government uh, because hundreds of them have been infected by COVID. And in, in 
in response, the government has responded by actually shooting, using live ammunition and using tear, tear gas to silence the protesters. As far as we know, up to now, about 35 people have been killed in the, as a result of these protests. The government of Iran has stated that the uh, COVID pandemic is actually uh, a employed by the enemy, by Iran, or a Zionist effort to, to implement um, uh, divisions and to ferment uh, dissent within Iran. Uh, it has prevent, it has not implemented any sort of a shutdown of mass ga religious gatherings. The first uh, person who was infected in Iran was, in, again, in the city of Qum, in the religious sites of Qum. Uh, uh, during this entire period, this person was infected in about March um, and in, in late February, sorry, and it wasn't until March 17 that the government attempted to limit or prevent people from visiting these religious sites. Meanwhile, there were direct flights through the mullahs, religious leaders' own uh, airline, flying religious students from China to Tehran who were coming and going to the religious side of home. Iran is actually being accused of infecting about 15 other countries, including Iraq. Now that has impacted uh, the socio-political and economic situation here in Iraq because there's already been significant amounts of tension towards Iran. There's been significant amounts of fear in relation to Iran fomenting conflict and war, basically World War III, uh, with the United States on Iraqi uh, soil, especially in relation to the killing of the Iranian general um, Qasim. Uh, in, in late uh, uh, October uh, 2019. Um, Iran initially uh, did not uh, implement any sort of measures, any sort of a testing. It actually kicked out uh, Doctors Without Borders and prevented them from building a 50 bed, only 50 bed for a population of 80 million uh, hospital in the city of Isfahan. Now Iran is actually asking the International Monetary Fund for about 5 billion of funds to bail itself out and to use it in order to uh, implement testing, uh, hospitals, uh, infrastructure. However, the uh, Trump government is actually blocking this uh, and vetoing this effort in the International Monetary Fund. At the same time, the European Union is attempting to provide about 222 million uh, euros to Iran in order to get itself out of this situation. Now, Iran at the moment is claiming that about 68,000 uh, people are uh, infected and about 4,200 and so number of people have been uh, have lost their lives. However, activists on the ground are saying that these numbers are actually much, much higher. We're also getting a similar feel here in Iraq uh, in relation to suppression of numbers. We don't actually know the number of people who have been killed, you know, uh, who have lost their lives. We don't actually know the number of people who have been infected. Iraq recently, uh, just about um, late last week, threatened the World Health Organization because World Health Organization was claiming that uh, Iraq is suppressing the numbers. And so the response of the Iraqi government was to actually find uh, who here in Iraq and threaten to kick them out of the country. So there's a huge number of suppression in relation to the responses of communities, both in Iran and in Iraq here. Uh, it has followed a, a particular process. Um, three particular uh, methods have been identified so far. One, it's as a result of unsystematic uh, and unorganized activity from individuals and uh, people who are trying to come together using social media to provide some sort of support. Two, it has been through well-known individuals, famous individuals, actors, uh, uh, 
uh, you know, famous people across society who have financial means to implement their own measures to provide support to communities, or as a result of political parties and individuals or leaders within political parties attempting to generate further support for themselves by implementing um, particular health healthcare measures. Now, this, is this has not been an effective way of supporting people. We've had uh, groups who have gone and provided aid door to door and taken photos of people who have uh, received the aid. This has generated a lot of discussion and criticism across society. Um, and so there's been a lot of issues in relation to Iran and Iraq. Um, some, you know, prisoners in, in Iran, for example, uh, women's groups have attempted uh, to, uh, to uh, educate society. Uh, anyone who has attempted to raise awareness about what's happening in Iran has been arrested. Doctors who have attempted to provide free care in secret in hospitals have been uh, arrested and detained. Now, I'm being told by Rachel that my time is up. So I'm going to stop there. I'm so sorry. I know I had two countries to go through and I, it probably was a bit of a disjointed presentation. But um, if, if anyone has any questions, I'll, I'll just try to answer more in depth in, in the questions. Thank you. I hope you got a lot out of this episode. To continue producing shows like this, we need your support. Consider becoming a supporter for $5 a month, sharing this show on social media, and submitting your own stories. You can do all this at our website, greenleft.org.au.